The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. All right, tell me the plan again. I go in, I find the tattooed Russian, I get a clear picture of him, and I get the hell out of there. And you don't stay any longer than you need to. I'll be fine. Besides, it's Chinatown. How many Russian poker players can there be? Anybody else have a bad feeling about this? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. This is the hashtag. Понимаешь, как устроен наш мир? Посмотрим, сколько он готов заплатить. Yeah. Seems like he's making friends. They just said they're going to take him for everything he's got. Will you speak Russian? Semester in Kiev between junior and senior year. Sometimes when I am bored, I go to Glechi Cafe in Little Odessa and pretend to be Muscovite. And that's kind of hot. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Some very interesting developments on the Russian front. The West is playing a very dangerous game of nuclear poker with Russia. And Putin is the one who's really holding all the cards. Will he take the West for all they've got? <laughs> well, as I record this broadcast, the very events that are the topic of our show today will be resolving themselves. And by the time this show airs, it's anybody's guess as to how much further along the plot to take over Russia will have progressed. What plot is that, you may ask? Well, I learned a lot about the conflict in Ukraine and about Vladimir Putin that I did not know only a week ago. And it seems critical to me that I share this information with as many people as possible, especially in the wake of the propaganda escalation over Putin, Russia, and Ukraine. Our journey begins right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. How remarkable that the acknowledged most corrupt regime on the globe, <laughs> Ukraine, is still being taken seriously by the mainstream media and the usual band of leftist nihilists. But that's the nature of the globalist crisis in which we find ourselves, isn't it? The ignorance being spread by the state-paid propagandist media is astounding and needs to be countered with a dose of reality. So let us begin with the propaganda itself, or rather, the official narrative, in the form of yet another great news report from my print copy of the National Post and Reuters. Headline reads, Regions Residents Coerced in Referendums, Ukraine, written by Pavel Politiuk. And the subhead reads, Armed Groups Forcing People to Vote on Joining with Russia, officials say. And this appeared in the National Post front page on September 24th. Now, even on first reading, I have to confess, 
that that headline and story spin seemed completely outrageous and illogical, quite frankly. But hey, apparently if it's in a prestigious publication like the National Post, it must be true, right? Well, let's investigate further, shall we? And I quote, Russia launched referendums on Friday aimed at annexing four occupied regions of Ukraine, raising the stakes of the seven-month-old war in what Kiev called a sham that saw residents threatened with punishment if they did not vote. Ukrainian officials said people were banned from leaving some occupied areas until the four-day vote was over. Armed groups were going to homes to force people to cast ballots, and employees were threatened with losing their job if they did not participate. The votes on becoming part of Russia were hastily organized after Ukraine earlier this month recaptured large swaths of the Northeast in a counteroffensive. With Russian President Vladimir Putin also announcing a military draft this week to enlist 300,000 troops to fight in Ukraine, the Kremlin appears to be trying to regain the upper hand in the grinding conflict since its February 24th invasion. By incorporating the four areas, Moscow could portray attacks to retake them as an attack on Russia itself, potentially using that to justify even a nuclear response. Putin and other Russian officials have mentioned nuclear weapons as an option to extremists, a terrifying prospect in a war that has already killed tens of thousands of people, uprooted millions, and pummeled the global economy. Voting in the four provinces in the east and southeast, representing about 15% of Ukrainian territory, was due to run from Friday to Tuesday. Serhiy Gadai, Ukraine's Luhansk governor, said that in the town of Starobilsk, the population was banned from leaving and people were being forced out of homes to vote. Calling the event Elections Without Elections, Gadal said people were being forced to fill out a piece of paper without privacy in kitchens and yards with towns sealed off. The mood of the Russians is panicky because they're not ready to carry out so quickly this so-called referendum. There is no support. There's not enough people, Zobolewski said on the messaging app Telegram. Reuters could not immediately verify reports of coercion. Ukraine, Western leaders, and the United Nations condemned the votes as an illegitimate precursor to illegal annexation. There are no independent observers, and much of the pre-war population has fled. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which monitors elections, said the outcomes would have no legal bearing as they do not conform with Ukraine law or international standards, and the areas are not secure. Moscow maintains that the referendums offer an opportunity for people in the region to express their view. Ukraine says it will never accept Russian territorial takeovers. It's all nonsense, bluff, and political manipulation to frighten us and the Western countries with their nuclear stuff, said Oleksandr Yaroshenko, 65, a resident in the capital, Kiev. Russia previously used the referendum as a pretext for annexation in Ukraine's Crimea in 2014, which the international community has not recognized. And quote, and that was from Reuters, and on the same page was another article with the heading, War Crimes Have Been Committed in Ukraine, and the subheading reading, UN Probe, Russian Forces Accused of Child Rape, Executions, by Emma Farge. Same day paper, on the same page. 
And it reads, quote, War crimes, including rape, torture, executions, and confinement of children, were committed by Russia in areas it occupied in Ukraine, the head of a UN-mandated investigation body said on Friday. Ukraine and its Western allies have accused Russian soldiers of a litany of abuses since the February 24th invasion, but Moscow has regularly dismissed the allegations as a smear campaign, end quote, etc., 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 Reuters again. You know, these are the duplicate scripts that were used to deceive Western nations into going into all of the useless foreign wars they got them involved in. There's no exceptions. Regular dismissal in response to regular accusations. And you know, so far it's Putin who's batting a thousand. Now, having heard the official narrative, how would you like to hear a narrative that's a little more reflective of reality? Beginning on this side of our next bumper break, with Robert Barnes as interviewed by David Freiheit on Viva Fry on September 25th. While on the return side of the bumper, Jordan Peterson shocks Piers Morgan by pointing out that Hey, a little bit of Hitler and Stalin resides in all of us. But first, and bearing in mind everything you heard me recite from the National Post narrative of what's happening in Ukraine, compare that with what you're about to hear from Robert Barnes. Listen to this. The latest news out of, out of the Russia-Ukraine war is that Ukraine is making gains, uh, gaining back territory in the east, uh, never, in the east. Russia has resorted to conscription, uh, fighting-aged men are fleeing Russia if they can. The narrative is that it's collapsing for Russia. Ukraine is finally making the big push. But what, what do you know about that? So, yeah, so the uh, Ukraine had basically Russia abandoned certain areas in the heart and around Kharkiv and Ukraine went in and that's it. And it's being celebrated as a massive counterattack victory. It is, as Colonel McGregor explained, uh, it's sort of a, a temporal, ephemeral, uh, illusory victory that mostly has marketing value so that they could hustle more cash out of the West to, to propagate the war a little bit longer. Uh, what Russia announced was two things. One is they are now holding referendums, which I think end Tuesday. <clears throat> if you want on-the-street interviews with people, Patrick Lancaster is doing them uh, and throughout the whole region, uh, explaining the history of the you know that inherit you know one one result was expected in the Donbass region, another in the Zaporizhny and uh, Kherson regions that border Crimea that are all Russian occupied. The vote that's taking place is whether they want to join Russia. Russia has said that once the vote, Russia has brought in uh, international observers, but not international observers from the West, international observers from the global South, Asia, Africa, Latin America, to validate the way in which the elections are being conducted. Uh, most the Ukraine passed a law that said that anybody who even voted in this would be considered a criminal and if they ever retake those lands, they'll put them in prison for five years. What that tells me is that Ukraine believes an honest vote would produce an overwhelmingly pro-Russian sentiment in those regions. But that action guaranteed Russia's going to win. Russia has now said, as soon as that happens, they will incorporate those regions into Russia and will consider those regions Russian. What that means is any attack on those regions will be seen as an attack on Russia itself. So it will no longer be a special military operation. It will be a full state declaration of war. 
So the military uh, efforts are going to escalate. And in that respect, Putin gave a speech where he noted two things. One, he gave details that people had rumored was true, uh, but he confirmed at least the Russian version of it, which is that uh, the Russians were under the belief that Ukraine was, had agreed to a settlement in uh, Istanbul in March, in early April, and that basically what it would do is it would recognize Crimea and Donbass as Russian or independent. Uh, and and Ukraine would keep the rest, and that would be kind of the end of it. Um, the uh, however, the West, Boris Johnson and the Biden administration intervened and told Ukraine not to sign any peace deal. This, by the way, was at the same time that Trump was putting out a public statement supporting the peace deal and supporting peace. That it's insane to be involved in this war. It's a dumb war. And uh, so he confirmed that, and so he laid out: Look, it's clear that the West and its current approach will just escalate escalate and escalate so we're going to hold these referendums and automatically incorporate these lands within the region using the balkans precedent as their international legal grounds to do so supported by the international court by the way thanks to the west um and and then also ordered a partial mobilization and what a partial mobilization is is that he called for the reserves people to be in the reserves to come forward and anybody who wanted to volunteer would be re receive certain uh, recognition, financial benefits, et cetera. The West started out with a story that this was a mass draft. It's not. Uh, that it's nowhere near full mobilization. They're talking about three hundred thousand uh, troops. They could that they could a real mobilization in Russia is forty million. So it's that's not not full mobilization. It very very partial. But the West version of this was, as you identify, chaos. It's going to destroy. Putin about to fall. John Brennan on TV. Ah, Putin, yeah, maybe just days, maybe weeks. Uh, they're fleeing. They're trying to get across the border in Finland. They're jumping on the planes and escaping as fast as they can. Almost all of which, of course, turned out fake news. I'm sure there are some people that got out of Dodge that thought they might be next. Uh, that, you know, there's always people that aren't eager. But uh, they had such a volunteer response that they got more than the 300,000 in just two days. Uh, Russia's military is taking on, its young men is taking on a militaristic culture. What's being celebrated on its social media. I'm not sure there's such a great thing. I'm sure Russians do. I I'm not so gung-ho on this. But uh, imagine, you know, sort of game of duty. You know, you're a hero. You're cool. You're hip. Uh, you're popular. You're a patriot. You're a great person if you join the military. So think of our U.S. military ads, the, bad, the better ones, not the current woke version, um, and put it on 10. And that's what's going viral in Russian social media. So, uh, in fact, there was a mat, there was a there was a protest by the, the organization people most oppose demographically are young urban liberals in Russia. They immediately protested this, had a big protest in Moscow and St. Petersburg. The next day was a 10 times more massive counter protest in support of what took place. And in fact, a lot of Russians were enraged. This is why Putin allowed the Russian liberals to protest. He knew the reaction would be rage from patriotic Russian types. This is like people who were being who are at, at questioning 9-11 at the time. If you experience that, you're an unpatriotic terrorist supporter to raise questions about. It. That's what's happening in Russia. The, the Putin has been the elite has been more restrained than his populace. The, the people of Russia have wanted to escalate for a while. Um, and their rage has been building and building and building and building. And the Ukraine taking back a little bit of land provided a nice political pretext to push it all over the edge. 
So what's coming, and then Putin made his speech, some people in NATO, some people in the West, have been saying uh, stuff like, uh, Putin will never use nuclear weapons. We can threaten our use of nuclear weapons to deter Russia. You've had articles like, why not use uh, nuclear weapons? You've had articles like, limited nuclear warfare isn't all bad. I mean, it's I, like, there, there, there was one from 10 years ago that said, a small nuclear war might be good for the environment, but that was yeah. not in the context of Russia. It, uh, exactly. That's, a, that's the kind of insanity that was being regurgitated. So Putin made clear, he said, any attack on Russia using those kind of tools will be responded to fully. And just remember, what wind goes this way can go that way, too. And we have more nuclear weapons than any country in the world. And made clear that any attack like any, and he said, I'm not bluffing. So he's making it clear to the people that thought he's bluffing. He will respond with nuclear weapons if nuclear weapons are used against Russians. And uh, and he, he will see. Once the referendum is confirmed, the whole war changes. All of a sudden, then it is totally simply it is a it is a full scale war. It's no longer a special military operation. This appeared to be a Russian plan. The Russia was going to see how this played out. They didn't get a peace deal that this is very Putin. He doesn't use all his tools at once. He escalates and says, OK, now you can settle. OK, if you don't, I'll escalate a little more. OK, still can settle. I have it. You know, that's the thing. But what he's doing is legally. Using he he's he's he is a lawyer. Uh, he's very legalistic in his approach. In other words, they're only going to escalate to a state of war with Ukraine when it's actually Russian pe Russian people in Russian territory legally being attacked. The, the idea of the referendum it is pertaining to the territory that, in theory, was supposed to be negotiated uh, as per Zelensky's election platform in 2014. This was. Oh. 2018, yeah. 2018, sorry. And the whole precedent is the one we in the West set. And Russians have intimate familiarity with it because it was what was used to break up the Soviet Union and then used to break up Yugoslavia. So what Putin is doing is, well, it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. I'm going to take what you did in Yugoslavia and what you did to the ex-Soviet Union, and I'm going to return the favor. I'm going to have these people say, well, they want to be part of Russia. They did, now part of Russia, just like you guys did before. But, um, and that's why we don't have much from and an international court approved that as the Kosovo. So that that there is no legal grounds to challenge. He did under our own established precedent. Well, he's a lot more like everybody else than anyone thinks. You know, the notion that he's Hitler or Stalin, that's just foolish. I don't see any evidence for that at all. I mean, first of all, Hitler and Stalin were very singular types. And there's a bit of Hitler and Stalin in everyone. So, you know, there's some truth in that. Maybe there's more in the typical Russian leader A bit of Hitler normal. in everyone? Really? There's more than a bit. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, why would have Nazism spread the way it did? You know, people think, well, that's all top down. It's not top down. There's... There's a part of people that are all these people who informed on Kate Burblesing. Well, didn't Goebbels, didn't Goebbels say that the way to get vast numbers of people to go along with what you want to do is to terrify them? You, yeah, you, well, that you, you can you hold do that. A, a grip of terror over them. Oh, yeah, but and then, in a way, that's what Putin's now doing with the Russian people, they, where he's, he's going back now into a position of they're all trying to get us. They want to attack yeah, us. Yeah, they yeah. want to take us over. He's terrifying his people to rally support for what at the moment is a conflict he has started, which is not going the way he assumed. Well, the most, um, what would you say, the wisest commentators on totalitarian states like, like Solzhenitsyn, and, and many psychological mm -hmm. commentators, Jung was a good example of that, made a very 
straightforward case that you can't have a totalitarian state unless every single person is willing to lie about everything all the time. And you can think about that as top-down because the leaders lie too. Mm. And they also enforce punishments if you don't lie. But then you can also think about it. The, the totalitarian spirit is replicated at every level of the society. And so in a truly totalitarian state, husbands lie to their wives and parents lie to their children. And the totalitarian state is actually the grip of the lie. And so, and, and people will certainly go along with that. I mean, I mean, I mean we're seeing that emerge here with cancel culture. It's like, lie yes. or else. Yes. It's like, yeah, well. And the Russian people will be bombarded all the time with state media propaganda and will be buying into a lot of what Putin is saying. Yeah. How does this war end, do you think? We're going to find out this winter. Well, I, I, I know what I would do in his shoes. Mm. I'd wait till the first cold snap and shut off the taps. Right. Well, because of course he has, he's going to do that. He's got the control over the energy. Well, of, of course he's going to do that. He's already warned the West with his insistence that maintenance problems were necessary and the pipelines had to be shut down. Do you think he will down. use a nuclear weapon? If necessary, he'll use a tactical battlefield weapon. Even yes. if it starts World War Three, It won't. Probably. Why? Because we wouldn't respond? What's in it for us? You cannot win against someone you cannot say no to. Period. And we can't say no to Putin because we sold our soul for his oil and gas. Mm. And we did that to elevate our moral stature in relationship to saving the planet. And so here we are. Yeah facing a very dire winter, hoisted on the petard of our own foolishness and moral presumption. We're saving the planet. We'll see. I don't think so. It doesn't look like it to me. And this is, this is the most catastrophic issue here. Assuming that we're facing an environmental crisis of planetary proportions, which is not something I buy, by the way, assuming we are, well, then I would Imagine that you would put in place measures that would ameliorate that problem instead of exacerbating it. But all the measures you're putting in place are actually making the environmental problem worse. So how is that even vaguely acceptable? And I look at that and I think, oh, I see. It's just like George Orwell said about middle class socialists 50 years ago. It's not that you love the planet. It's that you hate humanity. And that, in a nutshell, defines all things left. Wow, that was a lot to absorb there, to be sure. And the scary part is that there's plenty more ahead. <laughs> What's in it for us? Asks Jordan Peterson in reference to a retaliation with a nuke. Well, for people like me, absolutely nothing, of course. But if you're a good fascist, you know, one of those people that's letting their Hitler and Stalin come to the surface... You can claim some kind of victory or a show of strength. And if you are a member of the deep state, nihilism and total destruction is the explicit goal of that agenda, so that would be just great for them. Again, as I've warned on past broadcasts, do not dismiss the viability of using nuclear tactical weapons in the way described and expanded upon on our past broadcast titled A Nuclear Vision About Nuclear War. And when Peterson observed that there's a bit of Hitler and Stalin in everyone, <laughs> more than a bit, he identified a human trait that I've talked about myself on various past broadcasts. To put it in the simplest terms, I created a political interpretation of human development. 
you know, that we're all born as little fascists, then as we mature, we may move on to becoming socialists, joining groups and collectives. And then, when and if we reach maturity, we develop into individuals, which is a gross oversimplification of my thesis on this, but which is consistent with Peterson's observation. However, it's also why I do not share Peterson's contention that there's a bit of Hitler and Stalin in Putin himself, because Putin strikes me as having nothing in common with those ideologies or historical figures, and he's clearly a mature individual. And the idea that we can all become like little Hitlers and Stalins in a crisis such as the one being manufactured now also feeds into that whole mass formation phenomenon, which is now coming under attack, a controversy I expect to be dealing with on a future broadcast. Now, when I said earlier that even on first reading that headline and story spin seemed completely illogical and outrageous, you know, the one regions, residents, coerced in referendums, armed groups forcing people to vote, etc., etc. Well, it wasn't merely because I knew it to be untrue, which, which I did, but there were a lot more clues in that article itself than you would ever need to arrive at that same conclusion. For example, why would people be forced to participate in a referendum? Can you see the illogical premise of that? If it's a referendum then there has to be some kind of yes or no option, right? Since when do you need to force anyone to exercise their freedom of choice? And if there was only one option, well, then it wouldn't even be a referendum by definition. See how those crazy definitions are so handy in leading you to the truth? Contrast this supposed forced referendum with Ukraine's criminalization of even participating in the referendum. How can you criminalize something that you yourself claim is being forced on the would-be criminals. And according to Robert Barnes, different outcomes of the referendum were expected in different regions. So where does force come into this play, according to the way Ukraine is looking at it? So how does the headline story in the National Post even make any sense at all? Well, only when you realize it is pure, unadulterated BS and propaganda. Then it makes perfect sense. And whenever the National Post article cited sources, look at who and what they cited. Ukraine, Western leaders, the United Nations. Well, consider those sources. All the liars and bad guys. They're all, that's our real enemy. Which probably accounts for why the article also noted that, quote, Reuters could not immediately verify reports of coercion, end quote. <laughs> it just goes to show you, it goes on and on. Now, Forget everything you think you know about Vladimir Putin because what you're going to hear next will tell a story that will force you to reconsider and question everything we have been told. To be honest with you, I had actually considered devoting our whole hour to Australia's Maria Z show of September 20th, but even that wouldn't have been long enough. Her guest on that day was financial guru and political expert Martin Armstrong, who had just released a preview of his upcoming book, The Plot to Seize Russia, itself expected to be released, I understand, in about six weeks or so. Part of the shocking backdrop to this interview, which I haven't included in the balance of our audio bites today, although you will certainly hear some references to it, was to learn that Martin Armstrong himself 
had spent seven years in prison because of being implicated in the plot of which he writes. It sounded to me as if he was very much in the same kind of situation that many of the January 6th Capitol marchers who are now in prison are. Amazingly, they were trying to get him to plead guilty to the murder of a Russian official that Armstrong himself thought was killed by Putin, only to later discover it was somebody else entirely and that all those murders assumed to have been committed by Putin were actually conducted by Russia's own deep state of which Putin was never a part. Have I said too much already? This, I really want people to hear this story. This is a story that explains why you went to prison, why you were persecuted, the ways in which you were persecuted, which are just unheard of. And essentially, like you say, the plot to seize Russia. Where where do you want to start with this, Martin? Well, I think that um, the whole thing more or less, uh, was something that really became quite bizarre. Um, but it, it began really, most people don't realize, but I, I managed to get a hold of the documents from the Clinton administration and have been declassified. So I've got all the phone calls now between Yeltsin and Clinton, and, and it, it's really quite eye-opening. Um, omitted from the history books is actually in 1991 when Russia collapsed. NATO um, went and actually asked Russia to join. And that is what sparked the coup against Gorbachev. Because the the hardliners, they looked at it as Russia surrendering to America. So, you know, they staged a coup and that's when Yeltsin ended up standing on the tank and all that. Uh, but that was the backdrop which history books apparently have omitted. Um, it seems that way, definitely. So so I, I'm just looking at what was sent to me. I know this is just a preview, but this is um, declassified documents from the Clinton administration about NATO inviting Russia to join. So you're saying that, that, that there's more than just this little preview. You've actually got call logs and everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've got pretty much everything at this stage. Um, the <clears throat> interesting thing is, is that the real person who was uh, trying to, to grab Russia was um, Boris Barisnovsky. And so he and his seven oligarchs were actually trying to take over Russia. And I've got the documents, and, and at first he was pitching it that, the West should absorb Russia like uh, they did their former enemies, Japan and and Germany. And he said, you know, look, uh, support us. We'll take over the country. We're not, you know, military. We're just businessmen. Uh, so that's where it kind of starts. And then when uh, it it wasn't working out well for, for them at that stage, so then they tried blackmailing Yeltsin. And that's when uh, they staged this whole thing. Uh, money was stolen from the IMF and, and was all routed through Bank of, of New York. And then Edmund Safra of Republic National Bank is the one that uh, was in league with Barisnovsky. And he ran to the feds and say, oh, gee, Bank of New York just did a $7 billion money laundering. And then the feds run into there. And it was all set up, and then they were blackmailing Yeltsin in July 99. 
that he should step down. Otherwise, all this was going to come out. That's when he turned to Putin. And you have to understand what was going on at the time. Yeltsin was being attacked from two sides. One, the hardline communists were trying, they filed a motion to impeach him um, over this Bank of New York and corruption uh, issues that came out. And they were trying to take back Russia and turn it back to the USSR. On the opposite side, you had the oligarchs that were blackmailing him. Um, so he turned to Putin. And at the time, nobody knew who Putin was. He was an unknown. But he wasn't a member of the oligarchs, and he wasn't a communist. So <clears throat> that's uh, when he was, Yeltsin appointed him August 9th. Uh, at that stage in the game, um, the world was kind of like, you know, what's going on? What's happening? First, they thought, oh, he's just going to be another one of these prime ministers that's pushed out. Um, at that stage in the game, what had happened was in the 98 um, financial crisis in Russia. Apparently, Safra had lost about 50% of his net worth and was putting the bank up for sale to HSBC. He saw an opportunity and he stole $1 billion from my accounts. And on August 27th, when that takes place, I call and say, what the heck's going on here? And uh, the head of the bank, George Wendler, he, his response was, he says, I'm just a messenger. Now, when you're talking to the head of the bank and he says he's just a messenger, the only person higher than him was Edmund. So I said, you tell Edmund I'll hop on a plane and I'll be in Geneva in the morning. And he said, you can't go there. He's not in Geneva. He left for Monaco for security reasons. So that kind of starts the whole thing going. Uh, and... So I had assumed that basically when once Putin was put in, that was the sign that the oligarchs were kind of dead and Safra being involved in the conspiracy, he fled to Monaco, uh, and which was like a fortress. I mean, it, but, you know, I think somebody on the inside let the, you know, the doors open and they went in and uh, I knew Dominic Don who, who wrote the article Death in Monaco for Vanity Fair. And also not reported, Dominic told me, look, there were two bullets in his body. Um, so it, it, it's a very interesting uh, play here. But um, at the time, I thought Putin killed him. And I was just believing what the rest of the press was saying. And it's just not true. Um, most of these assassinations and stuff had nothing to do with Putin. This was Barisnovsky taking out people that were going to rat on him or one, one thing or another. And so they couldn't blame Putin for that. So what they then said that he was depressed and created, uh, so he did suicide. But his bodyguard came out and said, that's, you know, absolute nonsense. And he said MI6 took him out. So I think it was basically, you know, the security agencies took him out and they took Saffer out because they would have led back to what, what's in all of these documents. It was an attempt to take over Russia, um, first with, you know, an inv invitation and second with blackmailing Yeltsin.
so when the whole thing just collapsed, uh, that was it. It's, 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 the rabbit hole is so deep, Martin. Well, honestly, I think that um, this is the origin of real Russiagate, <clears throat> that Hillary made all this stuff up, the Steele dossier, I mean, she's even been fined for, you know, it was all fake. Um, and, you know, she said, oh, well, I, Putin interfered in the election because I said the, the Duma election in 2011 was, was rigged. Nonsense. She thought he was really uh, maybe <clears throat> uh, interfering because of what they did in, in interfering in the Russian 2000 election. Blackmailing Yeltsin, you stepped down. Uh, he did. He didn't run in 2000 like he was said he was going to, but he turned it over to Putin. Um, and so he he basically did two things. He he won, um, knocked the, the communists out, and he also knocked the, the oligarchs out. So uh, Putin won, you know, uh, overwhelming support, and that was basically because the people were. Um, very satisfied because he wasn't one of either side. They felt, I guess, sort of like a Trump in the sense that he wasn't a politician, you know what I mean, that uh, coming from the outside rather than from the inside. Talk to us about this plot to seize Russia, and is this is is what we're seeing today going all the way back here? Yes, um, I think that uh, in this new book, I've gone through all the various different uh, so-called assassinations. Um, anybody that say, "Oh, well, Putin you know, killed him because he was a critic." There's plenty of critics. Uh, probably the worst critic of all is has been, you know, uh, was Barisnovsky. He didn't kill him. Gazinsky, he's still alive. Those two were, were probably the, the main players in Russia. You got Bill Browder running around claiming, oh, he's uh, Putin's number one enemy. Uh, you know, I don't believe that in the least. If he really was, then, you know, and Putin was this evil person, then why are you still alive? Um, when you start looking at, at all these so-called assassinations, uh, it had to do with Barisnovsky. And he even killed a, uh, a guy that uh, from Forbes magazine who wrote a book on him. Uh, and it was, uh, he didn't like it, so he, he killed him. Um, and... Uh, you know, we called him basically the, you know, the the godfather. I think the title of it was the godfather of the Kremlin. And he was shot and killed while walking down the street. Um, that's pretty much the way you saw a lot of these people in the oligarchs. Um, they used <clears throat> blackmail and assassination uh, as a tool. Uh Baris, you know, even Barisnovsky ended up with uh, one of the probably the largest uh, TV station. How the guy was there was assassinated, and then 
Baristovsky got it. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So, I mean, <clears throat> what we're seeing today is still the same propaganda that uh, has been going on from all of this nonsense. Uh, and uh, you have to understand, I mean, I have very good connections at the highest levels around the world in any of these things. Um, I even do interviews on RT in Russia. Uh, so I can tell you that the guys behind Putin are the same uh, hardline ex-communists. He's not. And these people that are putting out the propaganda, oh, you know, if you take out Putin and like suddenly Russia will cheer. This was the same <clears throat> theory they used in the Middle East. Oh, if we take down all these, these uh, uh, dictators, like the people will cheer and we'll get a ticker tape parade, you know, walking into the country. It's just nonsense. It's complete nonsense. They always put out this, this, this theory. And it's the you know, same propaganda technique. It is. And I can tell you if Putin is removed, we have a serious problem. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. One can imagine that if Putin were removed, Russia might become as irrational and insane as Biden's America is today. And as we all know from bitter experience, that is a serious problem. So, is the person described by Armstrong the Vladimir Putin you thought you knew about? Do you think we'll be hearing anything about that in the fake news media anytime soon? <laughs> Maybe. Eventually. But they'll spin it just like the spin in our opening National Post fake news article on the great victories of the Ukrainians over the Russians. We'll be hearing more from Armstrong momentarily, but I couldn't help but observe that all throughout his much longer interview with Maria Z, he would emphasize the chronic corruption and evil that exists within these socialist cesspools, in the same way that movie director Aaron Russo described in his 2007 interview with Alex Jones, and which we featured on our show back on July 14th. The open corruption from the politicians to the courts to the police that Russo encountered everywhere he went was simply stunning and completely corroborated by Russo's own friend, who was, of course, one of the Rockefellers, and now also corroborated by Martin Armstrong. With corruption so openly being carried out on a scale of this size, it's easy to understand why so few people actually can see it. After all, it's hard to bring yourself to believe it to begin with, and corruption isn't something that makes itself obvious or visible to anyone at a glance. I mean, a restaurant or bar being operated by an honest person looks pretty much the same as one operated by organized crime, unless you know who the owners and players are, and most people never do. I recall Donald Trump once explaining to a mainstream media interviewer that the deep state is comprised of people most of us have never heard of, complete unknowns to the average person, in complete contrast to the likes of Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, Anthony Fauci, and all of the other easy-to-spot deep state globalist operatives. So too with the deep state in Russia, it appears. 
If you're not familiar with the names explicitly mentioned by Armstrong, you're not alone. And as to who the seven oligarchs are and their minions, I haven't got a clue, but I'm betting they'll be mentioned in Armstrong's book. And before we move on, (laughs) consider the ultimate irony and hypocrisy in the very notion of globalists who insist that Ukraine must be considered and protected as a sovereign nation. Why are they fighting so hard for nationhood status for Ukraine when their whole agenda and raison d'etre is a call for an end to the sovereignty of nations and for a global dictatorship? Anyone else spotting a contradiction here somewhere? As we head into our last bumper break, more stunning revelations and predictions from Martin Armstrong, whose upcoming book, I expect, will be a bestseller. Putin's strategy was simply to do the take the Donbass. That was it. And this a special operation. Little, like yes, he said. That was it. Exactly exactly what he said. Um But was it a retaliation against this creeping in from NATO? Did did was he forced into action? Yes. You can also Google, I think it's in the Daily Mail, the very day before he invaded. Zelensky stood up and said we were going to uh, Ukraine was going to become a nuclear power again. Right. That violated everything. Uh, The Minsk agreement was to allow the Donbass to vote after the 2014 revolution. All right. And the real truth is right after that revolution, there was an interim government installed, not elected. It was installed by the Western powers. That government instantaneously sent troops and started the civil war with Donbass. So when Zelensky was um, stood for election, you can also Google this. I mean, it's on CNN uh, reported it back then. Russia was cheering because he said he stood for peace and he basically was against corruption. Uh, everything he said that he stood for and the people voted for has been exactly the opposite. I had gone to dinner at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Um, I'd like to, to, I was invited, so I, I usually will go to something like that because I want to see these world leaders fa- you know, face-to-face. So you get a, a different sense uh, about them. Sure. And... Sure. <clears throat> I was quite surprised. I mean, I had met Trump when he was just in business years ago at a cocktail party in in New York. Um, I was surprised. This was, I think, in March 2020. And he said he was sick and tired of having to write, you know, letters to the families of whose, you know, son died in Afghanistan. He said, what are we there for? They're fighting over borders for a thousand years. What difference are we going to make? So he wanted to pull the troops back. Then you had, you know, Bolton, who was basically, oh, he's a traitor to the United States and all this other kind of stuff. He was the first head of state I ever heard who even thought twice about the people who die on the battlefield. All the rest of them, yeah, let's go in there. We, we have to defeat Russia. You know, how many lives do you destroy 
how many people are wounded that will never walk again. They never consider any of that. All they, they, they talk about is me against this guy. That, that's it. I'm very much concerned about the November elections. The, the election for Biden, it was rigged. Uh, I don't care what anybody wants to say about it. I mean, it, it's just simply the way it was. Yes. Um, and I am very pessimistic about this current election, that they will do whatever they need to do. Uh, and I'm afraid that it's just nothing's going to be accepted regardless of who won. So the computer showing massive civil unrest uh, coming in for 23. All January, over, right? Like, Every country. Yeah, is it's, it's everywhere. It's it's just, I think this is the whole problem that these people are, it, it's socialism that is collapsing. So when we're well, talking a, an economic collapse, is it going to be an obvious economic collapse? Like we're seeing, you know, the stock market and we're seeing all these trends and there's economists speaking up about this who aren't conspiracists, Martin. So I, I'm wondering whether the world just knows this is coming or whether they're likely going to stage something like that? Well, I think we're looking at something that is also staged. What do we see in terms of the economic collapse, Martin? What sort of a time frame are we looking at? Well, I'm not even sure that we're going to have a presidential election in 24. It's that kind of, it's, it's that bad. They're going to try their best, I think, to rig the election in the United States, and I, it's not going to go down. So I think you're just going to see more and more civil unrest. The same thing in Europe. I mean, it's, it's, it's just completely insane. You're right about the November elections. Either they're going to be rigged or they don't want them to go ahead. And my thoughts around this are, you know, are they going to collapse the economy? Do, again, I'll, I'll ask, do we have a time frame or are we just waiting to see how it goes? Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily collapsing, but it's mm. under serious attack. We're looking at more of a, of a crisis, I would say, economically, you're undermining the confidence. Uh, and once that happens, we're not putting this back together again. This has destroyed the world economy. The, the sanctions against Russia are a complete violation of everything that the world has been based on. International law is how the world economy has been established. All right. Once you you have cut off those ties. All right. So it's no longer beneficial for a Russian to come here and buy property or whatever. Suddenly capital then isolates. So this is what I mean, that the, the world economy is collapsing. That's what what is is causing this real problem. And the idiots that have started these sanctions are just oblivious to it. Oblivious or doing it on purpose? It, it's, it's very important, I think, to understand what's really happening here. Schwab will fail the same reason that Marx failed. 
Uh, he's trying to change human nature and it's just not going to work. Oh. When I was doing research at Princeton University, one of the, the guys at New Einstein came and it, <clears throat> over to me and he says, you remind me of Einstein. I said, what? I, he said, it's curiosity. He explained to me, he says, what I, Einstein would always say, if you're not curious, you're never going to discover anything. So it wasn't that I was like Einstein is genius in physics or something. It was He was talking about curiosity. And that is what Schwab is destroying. That's what Russia was destroying. You know, if people are not allowed to free, freely think and explore their curiosity, then you discover nothing. Hmm. That's why Russia collapsed. Uh, it did not work. And you, you alter the thinking process of people. I mean, I was uh, went to China when, you know, to try and help them become capitalist and I was taken to this one facility where they were monitoring everything but they were not interfering but they did, couldn't understand why one tea you know was selling for like a dollar here and ten dollars someplace else and I said well where is it from I said here well first thing you have is transportation costs they were like oh yeah okay and then it was like some people will pay more for one thing versus another because they like it. Oh, okay. I mean, these were concepts so basic that that's what communism had wrung out of them. Yes. Under communism, if it was a dollar here, it was a dollar over there, even if it cost them $10 to get it there. That's why it was so inefficient. This is what Schwab is trying to recreate. I imagine one of the first things most people think about when they hear about a financial collapse is something along the likes of, you know, requiring wheelbarrows full of cash to even buy a loaf of bread or where barter is the only means of exchange. Well, that is one form, but consider the nature of the collapse that Armstrong is describing. He's talking about a collapse of global markets due to a crisis of confidence. It's like a shrinkage. This is precisely the same kind of phenomenon, a crisis of confidence that was precipitated by Canada's uber-Nazi fascist, Christia Freeland, who actually thought that she had some kind of demon-granted right to confiscate donations given to the truckers' freedom convoy to lock down personal bank accounts and instruments of credit for anyone who may have supported the convoy in any arbitrary way that they liked and put them in jail just for the heck of it. Now, Christia Freeland is a clear example of someone who has a lot of Hitler and Stalin inside them. But looking at the big picture, you can't help but draw remarkable parallels between Putin's situation in Russia with that of Trump's situation in America. Each are outsiders being attacked by their own versions of Democrats and rhinos, the deep state. Despite his harrowing predictions, Armstrong's comments about the collapse of socialism are among the most profound and deeply fundamental truths I've ever heard expressed publicly. His experience with the Chinese economic planners is a classic example of how and why all forms of collectivism are doomed to failure. Assuming, of course, that life and survival are the measures of success in the first place. 
Schwab will fail for the same reason as Marx. He's trying to change human nature, observes Armstrong. And this, dear listeners, is precisely what distinguishes the left from the right on the political polarity. Without exception, policies and ideologies of the left are attempts to change human nature and to change it in a way that conforms to whatever insane, disconnected-from-reality ideology that a particular leftist variant may hold, whether socialist, communist, fascist, or whatever. That is why the use of initiatory force against those the state wishes to mold is always necessary. Always. Just look at the whole insanity of the vaccine fraud, with fraud being the operative word. Coercion and force are the means literally changing the nature of human beings through genetic manipulation and control is the objective. How much more changing human nature can you get? Whereas the left seeks to change human nature, the right operates on the premise of developing political and economic systems that are consistent with human nature, which is why the true right is where freedom and capitalism are always to be found. Freedom, so people can think and choose. Capitalism, as the moral system of trade, which prohibits the use of force and fraud, even by governments. The political embodiment of individual choice and consent. It continues to literally stun me that the power of a free market is still so little understood. And it has a lot to do with that curiosity factor that Armstrong was talking about. Think about it. The Chinese economists were astounded by the idea that different people may value the same things differently. They actually might like or dislike something sold on a market. How is that possible? Well, gee, maybe they have a free will? That this should affect prices, the economic way of expressing these different values, is a reality completely lost to central planners of any sort. They're oblivious to it. But the power of any market lies in the nature of the people who comprise that market and whom that market serves. And the nature of human beings is to be free. Unlike all mechanical phenomenon and even animals, human beings have a free will which is real and not just some supernatural phenomenon. And for those who insist that all natural phenomenon, including human beings, are subject to the laws of determinism, and therefore there can be no free will, well, you're half right. To paraphrase the Scottish philosopher John McMurray, what has been determined is that man shall be free. Fact is, there is no contradiction between determinism and free will, a theme we've delved into in the past and will again in the future. But if you're determined to reject this paradox, you're certainly free to do so, just as you are free to determine that you will join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I am Olga Artyakov. Oh! <laughs> please. I am looking for Colonel Beck. Oh, Colonel Beck is in town, but he should be back any moment. Won't you sit down, please? Oh, I can only stay a few moments. Are you a close friend of the Colonel's? Like blinces and sour cream. Can't get much closer than that, sir. <laughs> Dismissed, Hogan.
When did you say my little Bublitschke will be back? Oh, you should be back any time. I must go to hotel and pack. We go back to Rosh in the morning. Is that where you met the colonel? Da. His officer's club is next door to my father's farm. I am the farmer's dog. <laughs>